whatever's left of one's life and moving on to better things. Paul's realization is that to remain alive in the flesh is more necessary for these believers in the church in Philippi to whom he's writing. So his dilemma, he finds pros and cons. He finds benefits. He finds liabilities. He, do, he finds positive things from one choice, negative things from the other choice. And he's just between a rock and a hard place. So let me try to break down some of the dilemmas that you and I commonly face into three different categories. The three categories are volitional dilemmas, emotional dilemmas, and geographical dilemmas. And I'll go through and explain each one of those one at a time. First, let's talk about what I call volitional dilemmas. A volitional dilemma is one in which you want to do two things at the same time. An example would be a college student who has, ha, has finished the majority of his college work, but he's in love. Jacob, you need to listen closely. <laughs> he, he wants to finish his college work, but at the same time, he wants to start a family. And he doesn't know which to do. He wants to do both. But in doing one, it may prohibit the doing of another. That's what we would call a volitional dilemma. Another example would be trying to decide whether or not to stay in a certain church and work out whatever problems are going on in that church or to find a new one, to leave and to establish new relationships somewhere else. You want to do both, but you can only do one. And even another example is when you find yourself that, uh, that, with someone that you're very close to and, and you see some things that are very concerning in their spiritual walk and, and you come to the place where you say, do I say something to them or do I just let the Lord deal with them? Well, you want both, but you know that in, by doing one, it may prohibit the other one from taking place. Are you with me? And then we come to what I would describe as emotional dilemmas. An emotional dilemma is entertaining opposite feelings about the same event or circumstance. An example, oh man, I hate this one. An example is when you're faced with the decision of whether to put down an aging pet. Man. You know... <laughs> Um, you don't know this, but Trisha and Justin have a bloodhound. His name is Orson Wells. And I, I've been told that the average life of a bloodhound is six years. Orson Wells is going on 12. And Orson has a lot of physical problems. As, as a matter of fact, before Justin's tragic passing uh, they were at the point of making the decision to put Orson down. But now that Justin has passed, and that dog has been a part of those kids' lives for the entirety of those lives, uh, of their lives, I, we went down there yesterday, and, and I'm seeing Orson struggling to get up and down, has these 
whatever they are. Uh, well, the doctor says they're not tumors, but they're, they're, they're bags of fluid. I don't want to gross anybody out. But, and I'm thinking, man, they've got to put this dog down. But with all the emotions that they've been dealing with over the last few weeks and months, I just can't make that suggestion to them. But, man, it's, it's, I, I know a year and a half ago when I had to put my boxer down, it about killed me. It's, that's an example of an emotional dilemma. Do I do it or do I not? Or having to decide, even, this is even more major, decide whether or not to take a loved one off of life support. Those are tough, tough decisions. Another example is, is the dilemma of having a wayward son or daughter whose life has been, so to speak, lived on the streets, and their life bears the... the, the consequences of the lifestyle that they've lived, and they come to you and they ask you for money, for help. And you know that you've been taken advantage of many times in the past, but you see them struggling, and you want to help. That's an emotional dilemma. Do I enable them, or do I help them? That brings us to geographical dilemmas. This is probably the most easy to understand. A geographical dilemma is simply making a decision about whether or not to relocate to a different location. An example, you're happy with where you live, but there's a wonderful job opportunity that you become aware of, and if you move, you can easily sell your home and make a good profit on it and get an enormous raise in salary at the new place. However, your children have been raised in your current home. And they have years of friendships, and, and the church that you pastor is a great church that you quite likely may not find anywhere else. And by uprooting and moving, you may be faced with some unforeseen obstacles that you don't presently have to deal with. That's a geographical dilemma. So having heard and having heard me explain those three t- different types of dilemmas for you this morning, what do you do when you face those types of dilemmas? Now, if you're like Brenda and I, Brenda and me, sorry, English teachers, we often, and this is, this is absolute truth, we often sit down with a piece of paper, and Brenda will draw two columns on the sheet of paper. And at the top of one, she'll put the pros, and at the top of the other one, she'll put the cons. And we start listing all of the benefits, all of the downside to making the decision in that dilemma. Then we begin to dissect those pros and cons after we put them down. And we look at both sides closely and we attach the weight or the amount of importance upon each pro or each con. And ultimately it helps us in making a solid decision. So with that kind of example in your mind, I want us to look at Paul's dilemma that he shares with us here in Philippians 1. And I want us to try to dissect the pros and cons of his dilemma, whether to die and be with Christ or to remain in the flesh for the benefit of the church in Philippi. So here we go. If he were to die and be with Christ, well, first of all, he could be instantly in the presence of Jesus. Now, I don't know of anybody that that wouldn't be an attraction to. He could die and be instantly with Jesus. And I, I, you know... Don't want to get morbid with anybody this morning, but that's a thought that crosses my mind every once in a while. 
boy, wouldn't it be nice to just be home with Jesus? And trust me when I tell you this, friends, don't think for a moment that that does not go through the minds of someone who is in the process of contemplating suicide. They, they understand they've been dealing with a lot of stuff. And, and they, they tell themselves that the easiest way out would be to do this. That they have a desire to, to escape all the discouragements, all the disappointments of life. And they rationalize in their mind some of these thoughts. Another benefit to Paul's dying as we described earlier, he would be free of the earth's limitations, be free of frustrations, be free of, of physical or spiritual or emotional pain. That would all be gone. The anticipation of laying aside any struggles in exchange for instant glorification and perfection, I got to tell you, that's a big con. I mean, that's a big pro. Whew. That's a big pro, big benefit. But now the cons. Should he die, he would be absent from those who need him desperately. Now that's a big one. Uh, you know, I have an all new understanding of the difficulty associated with the death of a young husband and father leaving behind a widow and small children. The reality of having to face a future without that dad, that provider, that, that strong tower in the home. Uh, the lingering questions of why. And, and you know, it, when you're asking those questions, it's easy to rationalize that this family's future would be so, have been so much better had he been allowed to live. To provide the security that they don't have any longer. Well, see, in much the same way, Paul is looking at the Philippian church that he established. The believers in that church, a large majority, if not all of them, were brought to faith in Jesus Christ by the Apostle Paul. So in many ways, it can be said that the Apostle Paul is their spiritual father. He is their spiritual father, and he feels a responsibility. He understands the importance of steering them in their physical growth and their spiritual growth, much like an earthly father would steer his family in their physical growth. A second con. By staying alive, Paul knows that he quite likely would be able to impact more and more lives as a result of his ministry. He would be able to bear more and more fruit for the kingdom of God if he were to stay around. Because the reality is that when a life stops, all that's left are memories, and over time, that, even that model begins to fade, and the image is soon gone. An example, I thought about this when I was preparing this, so I'm going to share it with you. Can you imagine, take yourself back to 1865. The Civil War has come to a conclusion Slavery has been abolished. Can you imagine what it must have been like for black slaves to hear that their liberator, Abraham Lincoln, had been assassinated on April the 18th? Can you imagine what, what they must have felt? That's, that's kind of what we're talking about here, you know. They're afraid that what has happened 
all, all the impact that has been made is going gonna, is gonna to go away. And Paul doesn't want that for these Philippian believers. He wants to be able to, to powerfully impact their spiritual growth and affect their spiritual growth. And that can't happen if he dies. So let me just add this to everything that we just considered in the pros and the cons. If you think that the Apostle Paul was spiritually mature enough to make such a decision as the one he's just shared with us, you're wrong. He wasn't. And neither are we many times. How few of us would be able to make the kind of decision that Paul is faced with? We haven't been raised to be like that. We've, we've been raised to be decisive people, to, to look out for number one, to, to care for our own, to think and be intelligent and to plan wisely and, and to, to take every, make every effort to make sure that our lives are secure and safe and, and, and stable and, and with a minimum of risks. Hear me on this. For the believer in Jesus Christ, it shouldn't be like that. The Apostle Paul indicates that he's at the mercy of God and that this is a decision that cannot be made by him, but a decision that can be made only by God. What I'm telling you is that God should be the primary influencer of every decision of our lives. How many of you have ever made a bad decision? Yeah, probably all of us. It's not fun. So what, what each of us need to hear that Paul is saying to us this morning is there are times when we feel as if we have a, a, a pretty good understanding as to the way our lives should go. And then, as I said earlier, a divine interruption takes place. Don't you just love divine interruptions? <laughs> It's when you have your, I mean, you're focused on going this direction and all of a sudden God stops you and you can no longer go and be in pursuit of that direction that you've been going because God has something else in store for you. Something interrupts. Life is steered into another direction. And if you're like me, and I think you probably are, in those situations we have to be careful because it becomes easy for us to resent those interruptions. Hello? Don't clam up on me now. It's easy for us to resent those, that type of interruptions and even be tempted to fight against them. Paul knows that he may get to go back to the church in Philippi or he may be summoned to the Colosseum there in Rome to die in the next few minutes for all the Philippian church knows. God's choice for him are words of challenge to those who are reading this letter both then and now. Verses 27 through 30 are addressed to people just like you and I are, even though these words were written back in the first century. He says in verse number 27, let me get there. He says in verse number 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Read that again. Let your manner of life be worthy. 
of the gospel of Christ. And keep in mind that's regardless of what God's choice may be for your life. Now let me explain that a little more. Now, I, I, I did my best to try to restate that passage in words that made sense to me. And hopefully they will to you. I think that what Paul is saying to the church then and to those of us here now is to work on your testimony. Work on your testimony. Work on your character. Whether you ever see him again or not, or me again, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. If, whether you see me again or whether you don't. Death is going to come one day to us all if Jesus delays his return. So the most important thing for you to do is to live your life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus. i got to share this with you. Years ago, one of my favorite authors was a pastor from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, whose name was Tony Campolo. I don't know how many of you have ever read any of Tony Campolo's books, but uh, or even better, having heard him at a conference, this guy is hilarious. And he's, he's, he's so down to earth, and he talks so fast, you can barely keep up with him. And, and so it's probably better to read one of his books. But I have a book in my office that Tony Campolo ra- uh, wrote. It's called, Who Switched the Price Tags? And in that book, he shares a story that I believe perfectly illustrates Paul's challenge to the Philippian believers and to us here in this passage. I'm going to read it for you because I can't, I can't impersonate a black preacher. Okay? It's just impossible for me to adequately impersonate a black Pentecostal preacher. And those of you who have heard one understand what I mean. He tells the story of this black preacher, one who has been invited to present the commencement address for a group of graduating seniors. Now, I don't know whether they were from high school or college, but they're seniors getting ready to graduate. And here are his words to them, and I quote, Children, you are going to die. You may not think that you're going to die, but you are going to die. One of these days... They're going to take you out to a cemetery, drop you in a hole, throw some dirt on your face, and then everyone else is going to go back to the church and eat potato salad. When you were born, you alone were crying and everyone else was happy. The question that I want you to consider today is this. When you die, are you alone going to be happy and leave everyone else crying? The answer to that question lies with whether you have lived to get titles or whether you have lived to give testimonies. When they lay you in that grave, are people going to stand around reciting the fancy titles that you earned in this life or are they going to stand around giving testimonies of the good things that you've done for them? Will they list your degrees and awards or will they tell you of what a blessing you were to them? And then he says in his book, this black preacher really gets into the spirit of it. And and that's when he gets to these words. Pharaoh may have had a title, but Moses had a testimony. Nebuchadnezzar may have had the title, but Daniel had the testimony. 
Queen Jezebel may have had the title, but Elijah had the testimony. Pilate may have had the title, but my Jesus had the testimony. So my question to you, this graduating class, is what are you working for? A title or a testimony? Now that's effective writing. What are we working for? Titles or a testimony? Paul's focus, without question, was on testimony. You see, our lives go in one direction or another. Titles or testimonies. Paul's focus was on testimony. He said, for me to live is Christ. To die is losing nothing but gaining everything. That's my paraphrase. If all you have is what you can put a price tag on, you are missing life. That's why the apostle Paul can say, and again, this is my paraphrase, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Regardless of what God does with your life, hear this. You are standing, I want to hear this, you are standing firm in the spirit with one mind Striving together for the faith of Jesus Christ. Now, again, we hear this some 2,000 years after it was written. But to the Philippian believers reading this letter from the Apostle Paul, it makes them realize that all of a sudden they now have their own dilemma. What are we going to do with what we've heard? Because they knew that if they go in the direction of proclaiming the gospel, it's going to mean suffering and persecution. But if they keep their mouths shut and not say anything about their belief and their walk with Christ, that would mean that life could be much easier and not have nearly as many complications. Now, I know all of us religious folks sitting in these chairs this morning say, well, that's an easy decision. I'll take the one that's easier. Or if you're real religious, you'll say, oh, I can't wait to start suffering for Christ. But I don't think many of us look forward to that. The invitation to suffer for the cause of Christ presents a dilemma for many of us. And the, for the Philippian church, they're, they're, they look at this and they're saying, can we do that? Or do we prefer making waves? Do we move toward harmony or do we press for unity? Or, or excuse me, do we, do we move toward harmony and unity or do we press toward discord? Do we keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace Or do we disturb it? Paul is telling them, and I believe he's telling us, if we want to walk and live a life worthy of the gospel, we have to choose standing firm in the Spirit and walking in harmony with one another. Amen? Now, I'm going to say something here that will sound like an admonition, but I believe that it's not really me speaking it. I believe it's it's the Lord Jesus. 
If you're a part of a group where you cannot walk in harmony with other believers in that group, my suggestion is that you get out of that group. Here's why. It's not worthy of you living in unhappiness and neither does the rest of the group need you poisoning their testimony. You probably don't want me to say that again, do you? But it's the truth. It's the truth. It's not worth... If you're unhappy with where you are and who you're with, leave. It's not worth living unhappily. It's not worth living in unhappy circumstances. And it sure isn't worth poisoning everybody else with your attitude in the midst of them. I'll move on. Striving together for the gospel. Paul is saying the same thing to the Philippian believers that he said to his student Timothy concerning his his own life, Paul's own life. Uh, that it was nearing its end. He tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 7, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Fighting the good fight of faith is an athletic term indicating that if you want to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, there is one absolute definite requirement. You know what it is? You have to get in the battle. You can't sit on the sidelines and wait for somebody else to fight that battle for you. You have to get involved. That's walking the good fight or fighting the good fight. But here's the cons of the church in Philippi's dilemma after having read this. Paul says in verse 28, Do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Do not be frightened by anything from those who are in opposition to you. How many of you have ever been around horses and watched a horse get spooked? Can you picture in your mind a a team of horses getting spooked by a wild animal while hitched to a wagon? Well, just hold that picture in your mind for a second. That's the picture that comes to my mind when I hear about believers, some that have been believers for a number of years, that are scared to death that archaeology or science is going to find something that's going to discredit their faith. Uh, I'll get more practical with you. There are some who are worried that someone is going to knock on their door and point out something that they have interpreted in the Bible incorrectly and in doing so, let us know that our faith has been trusting in the wrong gospel. Let me tell you what, friends. That should give us all the more reason for training our mind in study of the Word to show that we have gained God's approval. It's his approval that matters. And be able to stand in defense of the gospel. And so quickly, let me give you four things that will help you stand in defense of the gospel. First, you are not alone. Verse 27, Paul says, striving side by side. Let me just comment that there is comfort in having someone in a foxhole with you. 
it's scary being in a foxhole by yourself. Now, I've never been in the military, but I've read stories. And I've read stories of how good it was for soldiers to know that there was someone there with them fighting the same battle that they're fighting. You are not alone in this fight. Mutual fellowship will stir us, stir up one another to good works. We need a sign out there by the highway that we have to read every time we leave church. It should say, you are now entering the mission field or the battleground. Let it never be said of us that we are leaving the battleground when we leave church. That was free. Secondly, not only are you not alone, we are promised the victory. Verse 28 speaks to the destruction of our opponents and the deliverance that we will gain in the process. And that destruction comes from God. In very practical terms, I say this because I saw a couple of them down in Perryton yesterday. When those two guys in white shirts and neckties knock on your door, don't let what they say disturb your faith. Because you have been equipped with the truth. The truth will set you free. So let them in and share the truth with them. And hopefully in the process, allow God to set them free. Amen? Now I know no one's going to answer the door. I'm just telling you that if you are equipped with the truth of God's Word, you don't need to worry about them knocking on your door because you're not going to be duped by anything that this Word does not declare. Thirdly, we are called to suffer. Oh, I know you don't like it. I don't either. But again, Paul gives us the dilemma in verse number 29. The dilemma is this. The fun part is to believe in Jesus. The not-so-fun part is to suffer for Jesus. God has an agenda for His people that is a twofold agenda, the delight of believing in Him and the call to suffer for Him. And it's not easy in the church world that we live in today for us to understand that suffering may mean, are you ready for this, that you are in the divine center of God's will. I know that's not easy to digest. But suffering may mean that you are exactly where God wants you to be. And in the midst of that, you have to understand this. Whatever you're currently going through may get worse. It may. I, I, I mean, think about this, friends. Are we ready to really suffer for the cause of Christ? If so, we can be inspired in the battle. Jesus' words in Matthew chapter number 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Fourthly, not only are you not alone, not only are you promised the victory, not only are you called to suffer, but you are in good company. Paul says in verse number 30 that we are engaged in the same conflict that we saw that he had. Same conflict that he's in and still has. The word conflict is taken from a Greek word, agon, from which we get our English word, agony. Paul is experiencing agony. And what a comfort it is to know that in the midst of of the agony of suffering for the sake of Jesus, we win. As believers in Christ, we take quite a few blows, particularly from the media in today's day and age. We take it from the world. But read the last chapter, friends. We win. The devil may question us when we're going through times of trial and testing. He may ask, whisper things into our ear like, what is your carpenter doing for you now? The answer that you need to give him is simply this. He's making a casket for your future devil. I win. I win. I got to close. I hope the day comes in my life when I have an opportunity to go to Rome where Paul was imprisoned. I would really like to see that Colosseum and envision what it must have been like for Paul sitting in that dungeon awaiting his death. What do you suppose he was thinking? What do you suppose all the believers in, in Rome experiencing the terror of, of Nero's rule, what do you suppose was going through their minds? Did you know that some of those believers literally became the torches that lighted the Colosseum? They were the sport that featured them being eaten by the jaws of lions. History tells us that they would wrap these believers in skins of other animals and put them in front of people to be tormented by other beasts and finally be torn limb from limb. As I've said before in this particular series, I have to wonder if Paul, as he's sitting in that dungeon, could hear the roars of the crowds as they watched the sport of believers being tortured, killed for the sake of Christ and their belief in him. Now, I don't want to be a forecaster of bad news, and I don't think I am. But who's to say that there might be a day that we have to return to that kind of agony? Believers, (laughs) did you know that, let me just say this. I don't know how much you keep up with these things. But did you know that since the year 2000, there have been more believers killed for the sake of, of their belief in Jesus Christ than were killed in the 2,000 years before altogether? Now that's somewhere else. And aren't you thankful it is somewhere else? But who's to say that one day that could happen here? And I don't want to scare anybody because I, I don't think we'll be alive long enough to see that, but I've been fooled before. But here's the question I'm offering to you this morning. Does Jesus mean enough to you to die for his sake? It's a very serious question. 
And I'm not just talking about debating or arguing for the sake of Christ. I'm talking about, God forbid, being tied to a stake. Tied to a stake and burned rather than denouncing your faith in Christ. That's that's the reality of what many believers have had to live with and have had to die with. You know, this, this entire message has been about making right decisions in the face of dilemmas that, that force us to rethink our priorities and, and to address those, those things that need to be changed. But as I asked early in this message, are you willing to work for your testimony? Or are you more concerned about your titles? Worship team, would you come, please? You see, choosing the right priorities forces us to consider the priority of having Jesus in the middle of every one of the dilemmas of life. You know, there's just some things in life that you have to choose that are really, really uncomfortable. (laughs) Some of the decisions that I see my daughter having to make now that life has changed dramatically for her. And I've heard her say, how do people make these decisions without Jesus? And the reality is there are many people who are making major decisions about their life without considering the importance of Christ in the midst of those decisions. We hear, we read from here in Philippians, Paul's dilemma, and he tells us, walk and live your life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. We hear that and we applaud it, have no doubt whatsoever that Paul meant that and that it's applicable for our lives today. But at the same time, and you know this to be a fact, there are a lot of voices speaking in our ears. There are a lot of loud voices speaking in our ears, and they're, they're very persuasive, and often they're very convincing what they speak to us. We see them on TV and we we hear them in the media and and we read them on the internet and we're told, whatever you decide, look out for number one. Choose what is best for you and then run with it. Well, I'm just going to tell you this. I'm not speaking for any of the rest of you. I'm speaking for me. Obtaining fame, fortune, Success, pleasure, fulfillment. I could go on and on. But just of those that I've just mentioned. You can take every one of those and multiply them by a million and add them all together. They're nothing compared to having a taste of the living water that Jesus Christ provides for us to drink from. Would you stand with me, please? I, I, I hope 
I, I have to trust that the words that I've shared with you this morning were words that the Holy Spirit had me to put in this message this morning so that you could understand them very clearly and very succinctly. Are you living your life in such a way that you are bringing glory to Jesus? Are you living for a title or are you living for a testimony? Holy Spirit, I pray that you're searching every heart in this room under the sound of my voice at this very moment. I know in my own life, Lord, there are times when the things that I do or the things that I say or the ways that I act really don't bring glory to you, Jesus. And your spirit is speaking to me this morning about those instances. And I feel the convicting power of the Holy Spirit upon my own life. And I'm guessing that there are probably others in this room for whom that same thing can be said. Jesus, I don't know what our future holds. I don't know whether we'll see you coming in the clouds of glory or if, like many before us, we go by way of the grave. But Jesus, I do know this. Whichever one of those things becomes my reality, the end result is going to be I'm going to be with you forever experiencing your presence in my life forever is not only my priority then it is my priority now you're here this morning I could not hope to give an invitation that says it any clearer than that song that we sung earlier in which the musicians are now playing we're going to sing the entire song, Jacob. And I want those of you who, who not only sing the words, but who, who see the words on the screen and hear the words of the Holy Spirit in your heart. I want you to answer the call to the invitation that this song gives this morning. Let's sing, 